This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special guest on the podcast today. Her name is Eugenia Constantinou, but she let me call her Jeannie because we're like best friends now. But Dr. Constantinou holds five degrees in theology, including a Master of Theology degree from Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology, Harvard Divinity School, and a PhD from University Laval, where she specialized in the apocalypse and the ancient church. She's actually a retired professor, but she has been a professor at different Orthodox institutions, and she was also most recently a professor at the University. University of San Diego, and she did that for about 20 years. She's the author of Thinking Orthodox, Understanding and Acquiring the Orthodox Christian Mind, and her most recent book, which we spent the overwhelming majority of our time talking about today, is this book here, The Crucifixion of the King of Glory, The Amazing History and Sublime Mystery of the Passion. So I was actually turned on to her work by Zach, who you will recognize from The Forging Table, and uh, Eric Metaxas, who uh, she was on Eric Metaxas's TBN show. I've been on that show as well. And you know, Eric Metaxas as a very well-known writer. And so Metaxas is a Protestant like I am, but he's gotten a lot of value out of her work and scholarship, even though she comes at it from a Orthodox perspective. And we certainly talk about that because as a Protestant Christian, not raised in the church, I was very unfamiliar with Orthodox. I was like, okay, it kind of feels like Catholicism, but like more restricted or something like that. So we get into that detail, but then we really dig into this book and understanding the unique context from which we get the first century, okay? What is the Jewish context of what was happening in that area of the world at that time? What was the uh, the Greek context, the, the Roman context? We spent a lot of time talking about what exactly that looks like. And then we start, uh, we actually start our conversation today talking about manhood because we were talking about it a little bit offline. So that's the, the first thing you're going to hear us talk about, which I, I really loved her perspective on that. But we also dig into the historicity of the biblical text and why we can trust these first generation sources and what some people say about oh, we can't really uh, believe in that. There's just rampant skepticism now about the the expectations of what we are able to glean from things that happened 2,000 years ago. We spent some time talking about Jesus cleansing the temple. You guys know how I feel about that and how much I love that. But we talk about the weight of the the term and the, the name Messiah that was given to Jesus. We talk about people doubting that. We talk about everything the chief priests tried to do. We get into detail talking about what a Roman scourging was because we think it was like a lashing, right? Because that's what's been depicted, depicted rather, in some modern depictions of Jesus is, is these lashings. But no, what's what's different about a scourging? We get into the crucifixion itself and, and the details uh, through which that were to happen and what type of anguish that would create in the human body. And then we also talk about the 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 significance of some of Jesus's statements from the cross and then what we can expect from Jeannie as we move forward. But I really, really enjoyed my time with her. So guys, I'm not going to keep her from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Eugenia Constantinou, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you very much, Kyle. It's great to be with you. Now, we just met for the first time a second ago, but do I know you well enough to call you Jeannie? Absolutely. That's fine. I, I'm not uh, I'm not very into formalities. So whatever you feel comfortable with is fine. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll see how it evolves as we talk today. Okay. But uh, one thing that I want to talk about right from the jump, and then we'll get into your career and certainly the book. Uh, but you were just talking off air about how much you like the concept of our show, specifically because culture 
does a really good job of uh, looking to women and catering to women and girls to the neglect really of catering and even having any concern for men uh, or young men, especially. And that is certainly true inside uh, Christianity, whether that's Orthodox, Catholicism, Protestantism, we're all doing a pretty terrible job of making sure that we're ushering our young boys into manhood, making sure they even know what that is. Hey, how does, and you even brought this up, Jeannie, how does manhood play out in a Western culture and how do you make that Christ-like at the same time? And and later in our conversation, I want to talk about the clearing of the temple because most modern men's ministries are, hey, let's go camping or hey, let's uh, get together and eat meat and (laughs) and watch this guy talk. And and those are fine, but that's not men's ministry though. It's certainly not discipleship. So I'd I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on that. Um, right. Well, I think that that men have been neglected in our culture because um, for a long time, they were the only thing that mattered. Everything was oriented toward men. And so when the women's movement began in the 1970s, uh, in a seriously, because it obviously had roots much earlier, but when it really became very a very serious movement in the 1970s, there was so much emphasis on women that uh, men uh, were really neglected and uh, men and especially the raising of boys and so much uh, sort of this the women's movement brought out this idea that men and women are the same we're exactly the same that was which is really ridiculous uh they have a very different psychology but still today people are functioning under this uh, misunderstanding that men are men or boys act the way they do because they've been enculturated to do that. Well, I know that that's not true from raising my own son, you know, but you see women trying to, or parents trying to give their boys dolls and things like that. Boys want trucks. Boys want guns. Boys want things. It's a natural thing. I know this because I didn't try to teach my son to like cars, but he, from the time he was little, one of his first words was car. Okay. That's all he cared about from the time. Right. He was, as a matter of fact, if you asked him, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said a car. Okay, so that's that's something that we have to recognize that biology is important and it does play a role in shaping who we are. So unfortunately, I do believe that men and boys have been neglected. And unfortunately, men are in a position now where they uh, or they're confused. They don't know how they're supposed to behave in terms of society. And I think that that is really directly linked to the confusion today over gender identity. Um, It's not that every man has to be macho all the time. And if there's any good thing that came out of it, it is good for us to recognize that men have a right to their feelings, that they don't have to hide everything, that they can be vulnerable. That's a good thing. That aspect of it is a good thing. But this idea that um, we should treat, you know, everybody has to be sensitive and and act like a woman and share their feelings, you know, um, it's it's really become, um, it's been harmful, I think, to men, but also to women. Because the expectations that women have of men are sometimes very unrealistic. They want their men to be like their girlfriends. And, you know, it's sometimes you wonder if they're just buying a lot of the popular culture. So what does this have to do with Jesus Christ? I think he's a great example of masculinity and gentleness at the same time. He knew when to be both, when Mm -hmm. to be straight, when to be tough, when to be we can say strict with, uh, let's say, the Pharisees who are challenging him to hold his ground and yet to do it with integrity, um, 
with to to uh, and also to have that gentleness about him. One of the things that I think is um, important for us to understand is that these characteristics that are or virtues are not masculine or feminine. I think this is one of the reasons for the confusion, the gender confusion today. People think, well, gentleness, that's feminine. God, that's mm. the feminine aspect of God. No, that's not. It's neither masculine nor feminine. That is divine. Okay? Love, kindness, mercy is not feminine. It's a characteristic of God. So men have all of those things too. And it's important that they not feel like they're becoming feminine by showing those qualities. And likewise, um, women have to recognize that they, they don't, men don't have to be women to have those empathy, right. you know, these kinds of qualities. So, Well, there's so many good things there. And, and one thing that I would even point to, and you alluded to it there, is Jesus was lamb and lion. He That's was right. grace and truth. And when right. sermon content or books put out by Christian publishers or Christian music, when it focuses yeah. on grace, 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 lamb, 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 yes. then men that are a little rougher, a little tougher, that yeah. are maybe more naturally lion, more naturally truth, naturally courageous or strict or whatever, they're they're going to look at Jesus as this wimpy, wispy haired, you know, <laughs> exactly. you know, European white guy with soft right. features. And it's like, no, he was a rough Middle Eastern yes. Jewish construction worker. And, you know, have you ever been, have you ever had a look <laughs> in your eye where a, a mob pushed you to the edge of the city and was about to throw you off a cliff and you just walked right through him and said, not yeah. today? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I'm sorry. Like, uh, in, in, I anyway. love that. Yeah. I love that scene. I love that scene in the Gospel of Luke. Absolutely. Right. I think that well, that's very, very good. Yeah. We're going to dig way more into that. But I think another thing you bring up is, so the different qualities that are typically masculine, typically feminine, typically more men do it, typically more females do it. I think the the biggest one, and I I don't want to go off in left field before we even really get started here, but stoicism. And and no, I don't mean the the philosophy. Um, I mean, stoicism in young boys, they they don't understand when they're allowed to do that now. And and, and even women, they don't understand when, okay, if I show my emotions, am I just being a crazy woman or a guy, if I'm showing my emotions, does that mean I'm gay? Like we have this cultural confusion over emotions. And I think uh, stoicism and being able to be resilient is one of those deals. But to to back up just a little bit, uh, you were part of Orthodox Christianity. And I would say the overwhelming majority of our audience is Protestant. And like me, maybe very little familiarity yes. with the Orthodox faith and how it differs from Protestantism or Catholicism. And like, what's Greek Orthodox? What's Eastern Orthodox? Yeah. Like, why are their churches so beautiful and mine so ugly? Like those types of things. But could you give us, I guess, a 30,000 foot overview uh-huh. of the differences? Okay. And I guess, because we don't have all day to get into that uh, because I we got to get I into know. the book. So give us a primer on that. Okay. Well, um, okay, Orthodoxy, Orthodox Christianity is the oldest continuous Christian church. Now, Rome, the Catholic Church, also has that. It was, and there's a direct link back to the time of the apostles. The difference between us and the Roman Catholic Church is that the Roman Catholic Church has changed tremendously since the time of early Christianity, and we have changed much, much less. Now, uh, sometimes people refer to the Orthodox churches because they are independent. They're self-governing. There is a Church of Greece. There's a Church of Cyprus. There's a Church in Russia. There's a Church of Orthodox Church in Japan, in America. So um, 
uh, but we are, we have the same faith. We have the same beliefs and we have uh, the same liturgy, but we don't come under one single figurehead the way uh, Catholics, Roman Catholics all look to the Pope because that was not the model that was used in the era of the early church. So whatever the early church believed and did and worshiped in their ascetic practices, this is what we continue to do. So um, most Protestants think that we're just Catholics without the Pope because they see Mm. bishops and priests and sacraments, but the early church had all of those features. And um, so Catholics also think that we're just like them, except without the Pope. But all of that is very wrong because the Catholic church changed very gradually from the early middle ages to become what it is today. It bears virtually no resemblance to the early church. In many of its doctrines, they elaborated on, they added over time, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, the the papal power and papal infallibility. Infallibility isn't just that, but papal power, the extreme power, the centralization of authority in the church in one Episcopal see, one bishop's place, Um, is something that was developed in Rome, and that is not how the early church functioned. Now, Catholics will give you all kinds of theological explanations for why they're right, but the difference between them and us, and in fact, the Protestants and Catholics are more similar to each other in the way they think and their theological mentality than Orthodox are to the Catholics. So everybody, the Protestants think that we're like the Catholics, but actually Protestants and Catholics are very similar in the way they approach theological issues because the whole legalism, the rationalism, the making of arguments for theological positions, this came from the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. We don't do that. We just theologize by saying, what did the early church teach? What did they believe? How did they worship? And that's what we do. And we don't feel like we need to have um, explanations that conform to human reasoning. And so the whole theological method of Protestants and Catholics is diametrically different than Orthodox Christianity. And it's very difficult to explain. I wrote a book about that, too, called Thinking right. Orthodox. And and it's it's really hard for people to realize that we have a very different theological mentality because the West changed. So we have a very different idea about sin, about salvation, about Christ and the cross. Our, why, are, why are our churches beautiful? Because the kingdom of heaven is beautiful because we worship God and everything should be beautiful. Our singing should be beautiful. The vestments should be beautiful because we're glorifying God. So when it comes to Orthodox Christianity, um, you'll, you'll maybe, it will, it might seem a little bit different depending upon which church you go into. The music of a Russian church sounds different than the music of a Greek church, but the words are the same and the words are not, you know, um, let hold my hand, Jesus, and let's walk together into the sunset. They're deeply theological. And unfortunately the worship of Western Christianity, both Protestant and Catholic, has become very shallow, very superficial, right. and a lot of it is centered on me, me and Jesus, right. me and Jesus, and, and who Jesus, we are, and, and yeah, Jesus it's, it's is your not boyfriend. worship. Yeah, yeah it's and, not worship because so, worship is glorification of of God. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I have, I have a lot of problems, and I've talked about that a lot on this show, yeah. about my problems with contemporary Christian music. I am going to give you a band to check out because they okay. actually do the intro-outro music of this show. It's a band okay. called A Holy Name, and that's okay. one word, Holy Name. The lead singer of that band felt like he was losing his faith, and he oh. actually became Orthodox. And hmm. this album is like his love letter to the early church and Orthodox. So I, the I imagery, love to hear that. Yeah, it's it's very rough. It's very metal, but like it's yeah. it's very interesting as well. It's unique. There's nothing there's nothing wrong with Christian popular music. I don't have a problem no. with that. Actually, we've had some Orthodox people who've sung even in Greece and Russia. I'm sure there are these sort of contemporary songs about Christ. But we're talking here about what happens within the church during the divine liturgy. And this is a liturgy. This is the prayers have been said, and the same hymns have been sung. Since the, since the third century, the second century, many parts of it, without change or very minor changes. So what we're doing is the worship of the early church. So I have no I like I like Christian music, but I don't think it, it bears any comparison in right. terms of of what it means to worship, because what happens in Protestant churches is they're trying to elicit an emotion. You have the feeling sure. like I need to get something out of church. I need to feel pumped up. I need to feel close to Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm praying and I'm glorifying God. And I know people really want that experience. But for us, we don't go to church to be entertained. We go to worship God. And it's a very different experience. And it's a very right. sensory experience. It's much more like the book of Revelation than the worship that's described there than what you would see in a, a mega church today. Right. It's certainly a different mindset uh, that has its exactly. problems because you're, the words you're singing right. should be deepening your theology, not confusing it. Uh, but one of the yes. main reasons why I wanted to have you on this today is because of this book you wrote called The Crucifixion of the King of Glory. Uh, this was I was turned on to this by a member of my team and Eric Metaxas, who he's been on my show. I've been on his show. And obviously uh, he's taken a liking to your work as well. Yes. But uh, there's actually a quote from very early in the book, which kind of gives you a sense of what the book is going to be. And then we'll dig in. So the quote is this, this book offers a unique perspective on the final week of Christ's life. This perspective is based on my academic background and my Orthodox Christian approach, which is steeped in the mind, very important word, the mind of the early church. And so you break the book up into th three parts. The first part is called the stage is set. So you're kind of setting the foundations right. of what time period we're even in. Part two is the king on trial. So that's the, the trial and everything that led into the trial of Jesus. And then the last part is the cross. And so just early on, Early in the book, in part one, the stage is set. You talk about the historicity of the biblical texts, what actually yes. happened. And you also talk about the importance of what, what you call or what is called first generation sources and how yes. important that is when you're looking at any historical document. Now, a lot of people... Even Christians, I say, well, look at the Bible like, uh, you know, you know, they listen to Joe Rogan who says, oh, it's been translated so many times. We don't even have the original. So how could we even know that Jesus even existed, much less wow. is the savior of the world, right? And a lot of people just, you know, yeah. buy that hook on the sinker. So, so what, let's talk about the, the historicity yes. of the biblical text and then yes. we'll dig more into the book. Yes, it's unfortunate that that people, that Christians don't um, know about this and they, they just accept what they hear in the modern culture. First of all, the idea that Jesus never existed, almost nobody says that anymore. That's the most shallow, the most, excuse me, yeah. stupid thinking yeah. 
that the, now that was kind of popular more than a hundred years ago. Oh, there's no mm-hmm. proof that Jesus existed. Well, guess what? There's no proof that Socrates existed. Nobody questions that or that Moses existed or Abraham existed. We have a lot of proof outside the Bible that there was yeah. a person named Jesus. Okay. Who was called the Christ by right. his and followers. Jeannie, all right. And Jeannie, just to hop in there, like you do talk about Jesus's life, death and crucifixion is attested to by Jewish uh, historians yes. at the time, Greek historians, Roman historians, yep. archaeological discovery. So, so yeah, I mean, there's it's no all there. question about it. I mean, it's it's ridiculous that people even say that anymore. That Jesus never existed. You can gotta put that aside. And for anybody yeah. to say that is it, just very a very shallow thinker. I'm sorry, but um, yes, the other thing is about the historicity of the Bible. This is true that we don't have the originals. Well, guess what? We barely have the originals of documents that were only written, you know, less than 300 years ago, our American historical documents. We have to have them in a special case in Washington, D.C., with special air in them, and they're fading in a dark room because they're fading. So what do you think happened to documents that were written in the first century? Well, they're going to have the originals of that? Come on, give me a break. The fact is that these are very well attested, that we have so many copies. There are more copies of Bible manuscripts than any other ancient manuscript by far. By the far, Bible, yeah. books of the Bible, um, of the New Testament, just we're talking about New Testament, there are 10,000 copies in Greek of the New Testament. And the other largest n- number of uh, copies of books, and it doesn't mean, doesn't mean the whole New Testament, but sometimes individual books or collections of books. Um, the largest number of copies of Greek manuscripts uh, second to that, second to the New Testament is the uh, the Iliad, you know, Homer's Iliad. And um, that exists in only 90 copies. Okay, so why do we have so many copies? Because these things were important because the Christians knew Jesus. And one of the things is if people, you know, like, like we can't, I can't really blame people if they don't know. This is my field, so I know it. But People sort of are, are kind of very simple-minded when it comes to these things. I, I know that I, my, I used to have to explain this to my students. People would say, well, there was nobody alive uh, when, you know, the Gospels were written. First of all, we don't know when they were written. They could have been written as early as 50, but maybe as late as 70, 80, or 90. And people say, well, there was no one alive. I say, why is that? And they say, well, because the because the... Average lifespan was 40 years. Well, you have to know what the word average means, okay? Yeah. So people didn't drop dead at the age of 40. That's what my stu- my college students would think. Well, nobody was alive. No, they, they lived to be old. We have lots of accounts of old people living in antiquity and into their 70s and 80s and even into their 90s. So this idea that there were no living witnesses, even if the Gospels were written at 40 years after the time of Christ, So let's go back 40 years and ask ourselves where we were, okay? Do we remember what happened, let's say, 20 years ago? Do we remember what happened 30 years ago, 40 years ago? 50 years ago was the Vietnam War, okay? Is there anybody in your audience that remembers the Vietnam War? Is there anybody in your audience that remembers the Kennedy assassination? That was 60 years ago, okay? I remember it. I mean, I'm giving myself away. I'm 66 years old. I remember hearing that announcement as a child in school. I remember the day vividly. Why? Because it was unusual. It was impactful. Mm-hmm. And so people who had 
and a direct experience of Jesus remembered that. And they didn't all drop dead when they became, when they turned 40. And there were many, many eyewitnesses when the gospels were written, not to mention the evangelists themselves, a couple of whom were eyewitnesses to these things. So we have a lot of, but there are many measures. So to go back, I'm sorry, I'm getting a bit off track here. Your question was, how can we have reliable uh, confidence in the gospels? Besides the idea of eyewitness testimony, which is, is extremely important, um, we have also the fact that the Gospels really reflect um, what we know historically. They're supported. It's not as though we can tell when something is fake. We're familiar with, um, with television and movies and things like that. Sometimes there's something that creeps into a movie or a TV set that doesn't belong there. It's an anachronism. It's not fitting the times. And people who were some movie buffs like to look for these things, like a Roman soldier who forgot to take off his watch, you know, before the filming. They'll look for these little details yeah. that betray the fact that this isn't real okay, or it's, it's not a, it's not according to this uh, time period. Well, in the Gospels, one of the things that historians look at is whether or not the details in the Gospels match what we know about first century Judaism from other sources, and they do. So we have eyewitness testimony, and we have something else that's very important. We have four documents that are giving us pretty much the same picture of who Jesus Christ was, and they're all from the first century. And historians who are much more, we could say, objective in their analysis of the Gospels than unfortunately many gospel uh, New Testament scholars, a lot of New Testament scholars want to prove how intelligent they are by showing how they don't believe anything in the Bible. Right. They don't believe in the miracles of Christ. They don't believe he was the son of God. And they want to, they, it's almost obligatory if you want to be taken seriously, except among some, some of them. But a lot of them, it's just, it's really ridiculous. And that goes for archaeologists too. They feel like they have to show how, intelligent and scientific they are by showing how much they don't believe. So in, but historians, this is a very interesting thing. Roman historians and other historians, when they look at the gospels, they say, wow, this is amazing. You have four documents about this historical person within the living memory of people who actually knew him. That is very rare. It's rare to have one. We have nothing contemporaneous about Alexander the Great. And yet no one questions whether he existed. Right. Okay, the earliest writings about Alexander are 300 years after his death. Okay, all of that was passed along orally, stories about Alexander. But no one, no one says, you know, no one questions the historicity of that. Well, so it's anyhow, not just, it's not long well, well, Jeannie, it's not just for accounts of Jesus's life. It's for yes. attestations. It's different. Like yes. they're attesting yes, for, to the things that they've seen. And, 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 and also... Well, it makes sense that a a Roman historian would would think that this is incredible because we have more evidence to suggest that not only did Jesus live, but that he was crucified on a Roman cross, died, and was raised again. Then we have that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon. And so, but we we just accept that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon because things that were written down hundreds of years after he became worm food tell us that. But we don't don't really get into that. But there's actually a very poignant quote from your book that I think speaks to this. And here's the quote. In our 
era of rampant skepticism, people unrealistically expect everything important to be documented. Yes. The people of the past did not rely on writings as we do today. Books were rare and expensive. The first Christians received only oral teachings, not written documents. And so this is what I, you know, what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery. We have right. this chronological snobbery that we exist yes. in, you know, 2023, and it's all those rubes <laughs> that lived 2,000 years ago. They, they didn't yes. know what they were doing. But also something you mentioned there that I don't want to give short shrift to it, but there's some other things I want to get into. One of the best things about the, the crucifixion of the King of Glory is that you do a great job of helping the reader understand first century Judaism. And so guys, the book is in the show notes. Yeah. I think it is well worth your time to, to dig into that. But I do want to move on to talking about Jesus cleansing the temple. Let me, before we back, go there. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, let me just, let me just add that because I think this is important. We not only have four accounts of the, of Christ and what, what he did, but they were written by four different people in different places at different times, which right. really attests to the historical accuracy of what uh, is in the Gospels. And um, so I just wanted to throw that in there because you brought up the point, which is, was a good one. And if, if somebody wants to listen to the book, you can listen to it on Audible too, but it doesn't, on Audible doesn't have the footnotes. And a lot of the footnotes will substantiate the historical things that I say about Christ. And there's also some interesting little tidbits in the footnotes. Okay. Very good. Yeah, guys, there, it is so dense, uh, the amount of yeah. footnotes. So uh, it's well worth your time and attention. Yeah, don't be intimidated by the footnotes, guys and gals. Don't, don't, don't open and say, oh, this is too much for me. It's, it's written in a way that's very easy to understand. Would you very, agree with very that, Kyle? Yes, it's very it's accessible very because I tell people, idea. I've told people a lot that if my intellect were a toaster, I could not lightly toast a piece of bread. And even I was <laughs> able to get through it and understand. So yeah, guys, you're going to be just not. fine. But I do want to talk about Jesus cleansing the temple. So some scholarship that, that I find credible suggests that Jesus actually did this twice, not just once. Mm -hmm. uh, once after he performed his first miracle uh, and once again after he arrived in Jerusalem the week he was yeah. crucified. But regardless uh, of, of whether you think it happened once or twice, whatever, mm -hmm. it was a very unique occurrence for Jesus yes. to do something like this, at least seemingly. So I'm going to read this quote and get you to talk a little bit more about it. The cleansing of the temple was not an angry outburst, a loss of self-control or righteous indignation. It was a dramatic statement and a deeply symbolic act. Jesus was not opposing temple worship or, an, or denouncing temple rituals themselves as empty formalities. On the contrary, he affirmed the sanctity of the temple, his father's house, which should be respected and treated with honor and reverence rather than exploited as an opportunity for financial gain. Yes. So take that wherever you want to go with it, because that's, that's personally some of my favorite parts of the accounts of Jesus's life. Because it's like, if you try to make the claim that Jesus was just walking around with lambs on his shoulders oh, yeah. and kissing women on the tips of their noses, <laughs> this gives you a much different account of the Lion of Judah in the flesh. So go for yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you're absolutely right. I, I'm glad you, you brought that up a second time because I meant to comment on this before when you were talking about how we have really uh, wussified Jesus. He's like this long-haired hippie guy who walks around in white robes saying, peace and love, you know, love everybody. And, you know, don't judge anyone. Just, you know, this is it's a ridiculous pr presentation of who Christ was. He had obviously a, a strength and a firmness about him, but also a grace that made him compelling 
and attractive to people, both women and men, attractive, not obviously in a physical sense, but in the, the sense that there was something about him that drew you to him. And those are indefinable divine qualities. Um, but he had a charisma. The word charisma comes from the Greek word charisma, which is a grace, a charism about him, uh, of course, because of his divinity. And I think that um, one of the t- cleansing of the temple is one of the most misunderstood stories of the Passion Week about whether or not it happened once or twice. I, I think it's unlikely that it would have happened twice. I don't see the point of him doing it twice. But the reason why people are saying that they, they might be compelled, St. John Chrysostom thinks it happened twice. But the reason why people might feel compelled is because they can't explain why it's early in the ministry of Christ in John and at the end, the last week of his life in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they don't want, they're not comfortable with the idea that the evangelists disagree. Okay. So they say, well, it must have happened twice. I think we can allow, it's, it's very important. Again, this is what's different about the early church and the Orthodox church and a, a Protestant mentality that everything has to fit. We can't have any differences among the evangelists. We have to harmonize them. Mm. Otherwise, it's not true. Well, the truth is not in these details. It does it, That Jesus cleansed the temple is true. When it happened actually doesn't matter all that much. Do you see my point? So we shouldn't yep. get all tied up in knots and say, oh, the Gospels are not true because this one has Jesus cleansing it at the beginning and this one has a cleansing at the end of his ministry. That doesn't have anything to do with it. That's what uh, Chrysostom would call tamikra, little trivial details. So was there one uh, angel at the tomb, empty tomb, or were there two? Oh, my gosh. Uh, the Bible isn't true unless they, we force them to match. You see, we don't have to do that. Let's mm. just allow the evangelists to be themselves and tell the story their way. So we shouldn't be disturbed by things like this because the early Christians weren't. Okay. So what about the cleansing of the temple? Um, most people will think, oh, Jesus lost his temper. All right. And that's a mistake. Why? Because to lose your temper is a sin. And -hmm. Jesus, as we know, had no sin. So this was a very deliberate act. um, And it was a very provocative act. He did it to make a statement, as I said, about the sanctity of the temple and what was going on there. But to really understand it, you have to understand the historical times. And I went to significant lengths to explain what had happened to the Jewish priesthood, especially the high priesthood, by the time of the first century, the corruption of the Jewish leaders and how they were really using the temple, the the enormous wealth of the temple to enrich themselves and hold on to their power. And the cleansing of the temple was also something else. It could also well be a sign of the coming destruction of the temple, because in a prophetic sense, when the Old Testament prophets were talking about, or were also objecting, by the way, they too objected to the corruption of temple worship, the abuse of temple worship, the fact that the Jewish priests and, and high priests were often um, far from God. They were just going through the motions. They had treated it like a formality. The Old Testament prophets also foretold the coming destruction of Solomon's temple. So... I discussed the destruction of the temple and what that meant in the early church and, and how that was really um, a very dramatic event that had more with a tearing of the temple curtain 
I may have not answered your question. I'm not sure. No, no, you certainly did. Uh, whenever you flow into all these different subjects, it reminds me actually of the book itself because the book is categorically uh, consistent, meaning you kind of keep things in their right place, but everything attaches to everything else because it's impossible to talk about yes. the crucifixion of Jesus without talk. Well, well, we'll actually get into this now because I think this this makes my point. So part two of the book is called The King on Trial, but you, you talk about in that section the importance and the weight of the title Messiah or Christos in the Greek. And there are many atheists and anti-Christians that will point out that many Jews over time, you know, claim to be the Messiah. They claim to be prophets. You know, I think yeah. the, the as Josephus put it, prophets would be kings, priests, and agitators. There were plenty yes. of those to go around during this right. time period. So it's like, why is Jesus yeah. unique? But there are many yes. groups of people, Muslims, atheists, pagans, etc. They make the claim that Jesus himself never actually claimed to be God. Many actually use the New Testament yeah. <laughs> writings in their arguments. So yes. let's talk about the weight of the title of Messiah in the first century in that area of the world. Right. Okay, let's start with the fact that Jesus never claimed to be God. That is that is really ridiculous. Now, it is true that when he met people, he didn't go around saying, hello, I'm the son of God. Nice, nice to meet you. That's, that's ridiculous. But we all know that Jesus was sentenced to death by the Jewish leaders because he claimed divinity. Now, what would have happened to his ministry if he had said from the beginning openly who he was? He couldn't have a ministry. So he had to be careful about that and also about his messiahship because there were expectations about the messiah that tended to be very political ones. So he had to be very careful about what he revealed and what he said about himself. And for the same reason, again, here, you sort of mentioned a while ago about how people expect everything to be documented. Well, this comes from our modern notions. And, And so people said, well, if Jesus really was the son of God, he would have said so from the, that's ridiculous. Okay. It's just, it just shows a complete ignorance of how people lived, what expectations the Jews had, and why Jesus would have been careful, not to mention the fact that he expo- explained things and revealed things about himself only to the people who were closest to him. Those were the apostles, the people who, whom he trusted, his inner circle. So just like we are careful about revealing certain things about ourselves to people, we don't, I mean, it's, it's less true today because people put everything about themselves on the internet, but still yep. there was a time when people were careful about what they said about themselves. And they they had a sense of privacy. But in the early church, it had everything to do with what you reveal, because these things are mysteries and these things are holy. And the Christians are making a a big mistake today by revealing everything. Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. And that means you don't give holy things or talk about holy things to people who are unable to receive them and understand them and will treat them without respect. So why would he go around telling the Jewish leaders, I'm the son of God, when they were not ready to hear that? It was finally he reveals it at his trial. And the reason that he does that is because he uh, wants to make sure that they know exactly what he's claiming. They suspected that he was claiming that, but he never said it directly. But when the high priest says to him, are you the Messiah, the son of God? Jesus says, you said so. Now, why does he not say yes? He says, you said so, because he's saying that you 
know who I'm claiming to be. Therefore, you are without excuse. You cannot say, oh, I didn't really know he thought he was the son of God. It's the fact that it's coming out of the mouth of the high priest. Now, if there's any doubt about what that means, you said so. Because some people say, oh, Jesus didn't say yes. He said, you said so. I didn't say so. We know he's meaning yes by saying you said so, because that was a characteristic way of explaining, expressing himself. It was his way of saying yes. We see that elsewhere in the Gospels. But also from what he says after that. And furthermore, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power, that's right, God, right, the, right. God, the Father, and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is an image of divinity. Okay, mm-hmm. so it is that it is after that statement that the high priest tears his robes because it's not um, to to claim to be the Messiah is not the same as claiming to be the Son of God. The most of the Jews were not expecting the Messiah to be the Son of God, although mm-hmm. I must tell you, in recent years there have been certain discoveries that point to the fact that many first century Jews had come to believe that the Messiah would be God Himself. This is a very new thing in biblical studies. And many people denied it for a while because they couldn't get over that. But the, 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 the idea of Messiah and Son of God typically didn't go together in the Jewish mind, but it's definitely there in the prophecies. So hmm. Jesus did claim to be God. He also claimed to be God by claiming authority to forgive sins, to heal on the Sabbath and do other things on the Sabbath. So he did, he made those claims, not in the direct way that we Americans expect, but in countless ways, he definitely said who he was. And so that leaves us with a choice. Either you you can't say you believe in Jesus, but you just think he's a philosopher. Well, then he's a lying philosopher or a crazy philosopher. But he, it really, I think Jesus did this on purpose because it leaves us like it left the Sanhedrin with only one of two options. Either, either you accept who he says he is or you reject him completely. But there's no middle ground with Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, that's you're bringing up the trilemma. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Like, those are the yeah, only options. Right. And and something right. that, that came to mind as you were talking is, like, modern people will read snark into things that are not snarky. Yes. And so they're they're thinking Jesus is like, well, you say so. It's like, no, no, no. Yeah. That's how you're reading no. it. That's not how it was said. And That's another right. thing in terms of when do you reveal who you are, I think about the entire process of when the Declaration of Independence was being authored and Thomas Jefferson and, well, yeah. why did he own slaves and why didn't he have slavery in that? Yeah. The original draft of the Declaration of Independence did it repudiate did slavery. Did and the problem is, is the South, the Southern states would have revolted from the beginning and then there would be no revolution yeah that was a big compromise yeah right and so it's like why wasn't it there well if you if you don't do a univariate analysis you would know why but uh, we we talked a lot about uh, the chief priests the jewish sanhedrin and so in the book concerning the chief priests and their aim to have jesus killed not punished but to have him killed i want to read this quote here the Romans would not have objected if the Sanhedrin had discreetly killed someone who threatened political stability. 
but the Sanhedrin did not want Jesus eliminated quietly. They wanted to crucify, they wanted him crucified publicly in order, in order to totally disgrace and discredit him to leave no doubt that Jesus was a false prophet and cursed by God. And so this, this actually relates to, to another quote uh, a little bit later in the book, which is today, a sense of shame is often absent in our culture, or it is discouraged, even shame for sin. Today, we consider it admirable and virtuous that Christ willingly suffered such humiliation. But when the Gospels were written, these details were highly embarrassing. The culture in which the church was established was a society that valued honor. But the church never attempted to hide the mockery that accompanied the crucifixion. And the scriptures honestly describe even shameful things done to Christ. And so I think there's a lot to talk about there specifically because the Jewish Sanhedrin got exactly what they wanted. Now, Pilate mm-hmm. pulled pulled some, yeah. some fast ones here and there, and they had to do a little bit of a circuitous route to get to yep. the goal, but they, they wanted the complete humiliation right. Right. of Jesus, this man that claimed to be the son of God. So flow a little that's bit right. on that. Okay. Yeah. I think that, that that's good. Um, I think that, uh, right. We, we don't really comprehend the, the depth of the meaning of the cross in our mm-hmm. culture because it's partly because we're so accustomed to it. But this was something very, very disgraceful. And they certainly wanted him not just dead, not just eliminated, but completely disgraced because, because of a lot of what he was, what he stood for, and what he taught, and the cleansing of the temple, and he called them robbers, and they said, "Well, we're going to show you, buddy. We're in charge here." I mean, Jesus, as much as we we kind of think. Another thing that sometimes people say is, well, if Jesus, you know, really was the son of God, why did the Romans go there and talk about him? Why aren't there, oh, you know, this, this idea that somehow the whole world would know about Jesus at the time he was walking the earth. Well, he was, uh, he was living as an ordinary person. And he mm-hmm. wasn't doing things, except for, of course, the miracles were quite extraordinary. But people, they, they could not, the Jewish leadership could not figure out um, how he got this power, not really the Sanhedrin, that was more also the, the Pharisees. Because you mentioned before about what does it mean to be Messiah? Well, there were lots of different ideas about what the Messiah would be. And people today do say exactly what you're saying. Well, there were lots and lots of these messianic pretenders. And Josephus never used the word Messiah in that quote that right. you used before. And I kind of like the fact that this was because I kind of thought, yeah, there were a lot of people who were sort of revolutionaries at that time, but nobody claimed to be the Messiah. This was brought out and kind of, I I thought, yeah, that's true. Because I used to say this, that too, that of course Jesus was unique among all of them, but Raymond Brown, a a now deceased Catholic uh, biblical scholar, really was the one who went back and checked. And he said, nobody claimed to be the Messiah in the centuries prior to Christ. And also in the time after Christ, except for one person, a Bar Kokhba, who led a, re- a failed rebellion in the second century. The fact is that it is very difficult to claim to be Messiah. So there were people who claimed to be a king. They wanted to re- lead a revolt against Rome, etc. But they didn't claim to be the Messiah. And that's not the same, okay, to claim to, to be a revolutionary, to want to have uh, social justice or self-control, self-government over Judea. That's not the same as claiming to be a Messiah, What's different about it? To be the Messiah, you have to be able to back that up. And all the Jews knew the prophecies about the Messiah, that he would give sight to the blind and the deaf would hear and the lame would walk. And nobody can just make that happen. 
Okay, and there was this other guy, Simon Bar Kokhba, in the second century. He didn't make that happen, but he went ahead and claimed to be the Messiah anyhow because he was leading a, another revolt against Rome. But you, we don't have anybody who claims to be the Messiah because, as you will see, you will see the Jewish leaders challenging Jesus about whether or not he's the Messiah, asking him to openly state that, okay? Mm. And uh, is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? The Messiah, this is in the Gospel of John. Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. Well, Jesus was from Galilee, and people didn't move around in those days the way they do today. So there was lots of discussion about whether he could be the Messiah, but ultimately, um, because he broke the law and because he contradicted the Jewish establishment, they decided he couldn't be the Messiah, in spite of all the fact that no one had ever done the miracles that Christ did. No one had ever fulfilled those messianic prophecies, except for him, those ones that are the hardest to do. Because you could claim to be by, from Bethlehem, even if you aren't, right. but you can't fake healing a man born blind. Okay, this kind yeah. of a thing. So this is why we see in the Gospels the fact that the Jewish leaders are really in a conundrum over what to do about Jesus. Because the people in their simplicity know he's the Messiah and they accept him. But the Jewish leaders, because they're so intelligent or that's how they think of themselves, they know the law, they know all the thousands of rules, they've decided he can't be the Messiah because they have in their heads their own idea of what the Messiah would be like, and it's not that guy. Why? Because right. he doesn't agree with us, okay? So Jesus is doing his own thing, and the or that's why he says that he thanks God for revealing things, these to the to the babies and the simple people and hiding them from the the educated and the lofty and the people in positions of power god didn't hide it it's just that the uh, the elite the jewish elite were unwilling most of them to accept who christ was because it contradicted their own notions about who they were what it, how they were supposed to worship god and, and many, many other things and their whole notions of power. So, right. Well, actually I want to, I want to dig into that a little bit further before we get to the actual crucifixion because, and I've always had this thought, I've talked about this with other, other people as well, non-Jewish people, but during the trial and sentencing of Jesus, yes. the Jewish leaders had to have known that they were potentially killing the Messiah, right? Because I mean, th these people knew the prophecies of the coming yeah. Messiah better yeah. than anyone alive at the time. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. Right, they right. knew the Torah. Yes. It wasn't even called the Old Testament, obviously. And right. I'm just wondering like how they missed it. And you maybe give us a yes, little bit yes, of a yes, hint. Yes, yes. There's a little yes. bit of a hint later in the book, you know, talking about modern Jews, but it was this, it became such an uncomfortable issue that the entire chapter of Isaiah 53 has been removed from the Jewish lectionary. Even devout Jews who attend the synagogue consistently throughout the year will never hear this prophecy. And so right. ignorance happens every time I'm, I'm, uh, given over like your book, honestly, I was very ignorant about Orthodox. And so I realized just how ignorant I am just by reading the first, you know, couple dozen pages of your book. All of us are ignorant about certain things. Absolutely. But there's natural ignorance, but the, and then there's chosen ignorance. Denial. There's, yeah. I know what it says, but yes. I'm going to just cover my ears and pl right. uh, plug right. my ears and cover my eyes. Talk to me a little bit about that because were, were there no Jews yeah. at the time that were like, Hey guys, I get it. This, this Jesus guy, he's kind of stupid. I don't like him. 
but he could be the maybe Messiah. So let's be I, careful. Maybe he's the Messiah. Yeah, of course there were. And we see this in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John. Well, we see in chapter, if you read chapter seven and eight, the, the story of the woman accused of adultery is at the beginning of chapter eight, but that was inserted later. That wasn't original to the gospel. Okay. Don't get all worried about that. Okay. That's a, that was a story that was passed along orally. And then later it gets put in the, all the early manuscripts, the early manuscripts don't have it. But if you look at seven and eight, except for that, you will see the discussion the, there the people were divided some people said he was the Messiah, and others said he wasn't, and they gave their arguments. All of the Gospel of John is like an extended trial of Jesus Christ. That's one of the strong motifs. So how is it that they, so people, yeah, many people do believe, and there you see Nicodemus come up, and when they say, you know, we have to put, we have to arrest this guy, and, you know, his guy is no good, and Nicodemus says, does our law, um, doesn't our law allow us to uh, give a man an opportunity to explain himself? I mean, so yes, there were Jewish leaders who did believe in Christ, but most of them did not. And it's very interesting at the end of chapter 12 in, in John's gospel, he says they could not believe, but he doesn't mean that they could not. He means that they did not. Why? It's like right. me saying, listen, I just can't like, I don't know, broccoli or peanut butter or whatever. Okay, I just can't like, it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. Or I just can't like him. It's not that you can't, it's that you won't. Okay, I just can't eat that. It's not that you can't, but it's that you won't. So um, John, it gives the eyes, that's why that Isaiah prophecy was so important. And the reason why we, we would say they can't, but really the truth is that they wouldn't, is because it would require them to change their own notions about who they are. This is you know, people face this all the time when they have to, when they're faced with a crisis, a theological crisis, a crisis of their religious identity, when they realize, hey, wait a minute, this thing that I believed in all my life, I'm not so sure if that's true anymore. A lot of people right. will do that, like you said, do this so that they don't have to change. But there's more about it when we're talking about people who have real power in society. They're not motivated to change. They'd rather look for any other excuse not to change than to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They had um, a very rigid idea. They had their own ideas of what the Messiah would be like. And guess what? He would be like them. It's like today when people say, well, Jesus came to earth today. He would be Roman Catholic. He would be an evangelical Protestant. He'd be an Orthodox Christian. I guarantee that he'd find fault with everybody. Okay? But the point is we want to make Jesus into our own image, and we have to be careful about that. Because that's a form of idolatry. So they had in mind, their own minds, what the Messiah would be like. And he would, I'm assuming, because they rejected Christ, he couldn't come from Galilee. Well, we know that. That's what they say to Nicodemus. Uh, in other words, he had to be maybe from a, a, a prominent family, maybe a wealthy aristocratic family. He would keep the law to perfection. He would do all these things. Mm. Now, you didn't ask this question, but I'll tell you why I think that that's very important. Because when we look at prophecy, uh, it's very difficult to interpret prophecy in the, before it is fulfilled. And so I, I don't believe that they knew they were crucifying the Messiah, the Son of God. I really don't. I think that you, I can't imagine a person who really thought that they were crucifying the Messiah. They whether they just they were in denial about who he was and the the reason for that is because you pointed out yeah they knew the prophecies absolutely but they had this idea of what the messiah would be like 
and it's not him. Okay, it's not this raggedy, you know, itinerant preacher from yeah. Galilee who yeah. upsets the social order, who challenges a high priest to his face, who um, who does. This is why they're trying to explain how Jesus can be the Messiah and yet uh, not the Messiah and yet have all these powers. I mean, the miracles are the strongest testament to who he is. Right. But how did they explain that? What did they say? He does these things by the power of the yeah, devil. Right, exactly. Okay? Which it's very important for us to realize that even Jewish uh, Jewish writings in the time, like the second, third century Jewish writings, talk about Jesus as a sorcerer, as a trickster. In other words, they never deny that he did the miracles. Nobody ever did. They just say that he did them by the power of the devil or by sorcery or by trickery or something like this. So nobody denies the miracles because you couldn't. There are just too many of them every day. So the reason why I'm saying that why this is important is this. Today, people read the book of Revelation. That's a different subject. But they read the book of Revelation and they think that they can explain and foretell exactly how the end times will play out. Well, all you have to do is look at Isaiah 53, which the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the Pharisees and every, the Sadducees, everybody who's a member of that council. They all knew that passage. They all knew the Messianic prophecies. The Messiah is standing in front of them, and they did not recognize him for who he was. So it's very important for us not to have pride, okay? That was from a position of pride. So today, when people say, well, I can tell you exactly what the book of Revelation means and when Jesus is going to come back. First, this has to happen, and this has to happen, this has. They have created a scenario in their heads in which which can really be very harmful, very destructive. You should a- approach these things from a posture of humility, but most people approach it from a, p- a posture of arrogance and pride. I know exactly what's going to happen, how the end times are going to play out. And, and I think that that's dangerous because then we won't see the, uh, we won't recognize the Antichrist when he comes because we have created in our own minds a scenario and we'll say, well, it can't be that guy because in my own understanding, this is what the Antichrist will be like. You see my point? I do. It's, it's funny. Every time one of these people comes out and says, you know, um, I understand Revelation better than anybody else. The world yeah. is going to end on April yeah. the 4th. I right. always send them a message. Hey, I'll see you on April the 5th. It's yeah, like, exactly. God bless you. Like you have no idea, but yeah. it's the mental, the mental gymnastics that people will go through as opposed to just, it's looking, pride. you know, taking yeah. the stuff that's right in front of their face. And I even thought about, you know, when, uh, when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, some yes. people take that to mean that God ordained that Pharaoh feel the way that he did. Uh, no, what no, God did no. is he took the way that Pharaoh already felt yes, and made exactly. it more intense. And no, so that's, it, that's the uh, difference. Pharaoh, Pharaoh made it more intense and God yeah. let him. Sure. Okay, right. God, he gave him the capability. Exactly. God just allowed Pharaoh to do what he, but that's a really good way. Of, but God allows us to do what we want. He doesn't insert himself, doesn't insist that we, we do something or not just believe in him or not believe in him. So he's just allowing us to follow our natural inclinations. And for these people, the Jewish leaders at the time of, of Christ, it was all about power and money and control and authority. So they were already inclined in that direction. And he was not going to start. They were not going to let him interfere with what they had going, which was a pretty nice thing. You know, a lot of money and a lot of power. And that's right. what makes the world go around even today, doesn't it? 
Yeah, Thanks absolutely. So, so there's a yes. whole lot there. I do want to get in now to what is perhaps uh, my favorite sections of the book. And I'm not sure what that says about me and kind of my macabre way of approaching the world, but you spend a lot of time getting into the details uh, as to the process of the scourging and the crucifixion of Jesus. And so again, we've, we've gotten some better modern understandings of the process of scourging. It wasn't just whipping. Obviously, if you, if you watch the passion of the Christ, they do a tremendous job of actually giving you a really in detail, idea as to what that would look like. But to those in my audience that are not familiar with how whipping is different from scourging yes. in a Roman punishment context, yes. uh, can you give us a little bit of detail on that? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I thought that was important because if Jesus went through it, the least we could do is read about it. You know, a lot of people find these things a bit uh, off-putting, but I think that we we owe it to him to understand what he experienced, and it's it's important for us. So a whipping, whipping was a Jewish uh, method of punishment. And um, when when say for example, when Paul says five times I received from the hands of the Jews forty lashes minus one, he's talking about an ordinary Jewish whipping. So that was actually something that was done in synagogues, and uh, Paul was subjected to that at the time of the writing of Second Corinthians already five times. 39 lashes. That makes a single mark across the back. And all of us have seen um, old photographs of American slaves who have those scars. We can see Mm -hmm. the scars of the lash across their back. That is not the same as a Roman uh, flogging or Roman flagellum. That was the name of the instrument. So it had a stubby handle and it started like a, it had a braided, um, uh, something that out of the handle came this braided, braided strips of leather, and then they all projected out, they separated, and at the end of several strips of leather was a sharp piece of metal, so that when the soldier would strike someone's back, the pieces of metal would um, attach to the back, and then they would yank it out, and that would cause different kinds of wounds, and multiple wounds at one time, because there were strands. Some people have called that a a cat o' nine tails, and that was maybe in pirates' days and things like this. They call it a cat o' nine tails. That's that's the idea of it. Now, what I disagree with, so yes, you're right about the Passion of the Christ movie. It definitely um, uh, showed that a a little bit better. I came out of that movie and people said, well, what did you think of? I said, I thought, I thought it wasn't, wasn't too bad. I thought it was going to be worse because even there he could not show depict uh, the, the harshness of that punishment. Definitely right. it was much more than the few little whippings that you see in the most of the movies about Jesus, but that did not show because you, you couldn't get an R rating for that movie. Mm-hmm. If he really showed how bad, uh, the the process really was, and he also added things in there that never happened to Jesus. Um, so I, I was we didn't approve the us Bible scholars didn't approve approve of that of that movie because he he added a lot of things that really weren't in the Gospels. So um, yeah, it's important for us to know that, and so this really left with repeated strikes. And by the way, in all the movies, it shows Jesus getting thirty nine lashes, but that was a Jewish numbering for a Jewish punishment. The Romans were not limited to 39 lashes. They could do whatever they wanted. But the Roman soldiers were very expert at this type of punishment, which, by the way, accompanied crucifixion routinely. But it could also be a way of trying to of punishing somebody without crucifying them. 
but it was a company crucifixion because of the tremendous loss of blood. Every time you repeatedly struck someone's back and pulled out little bits of flesh, and along those strands of leather, there were also little iron balls that pummeled the flesh and made it more tender. Mm. Um, it just contributed to the bleeding. And, and, and also, as you struck someone's back, because their hands were over their head, usually, some of those little strands ripped, whipped around and may have struck somebody's, the sides or their abdomen area they would have removed the skin and the flesh of the abdomen as very often the entrails, the person's organs were visible. So the, the Romans knew how to do that. And they did that as a precursor to crucifixion because otherwise um, you it would take too long to die by crucifixion because crucifixion while painful, wasn't particularly bloody. Yeah. So there were a number of reasons. It was punishment in the case of Pilate here. He's hoping to um, simply punish Jesus by, by this method so that the Jewish leaders will decide not to put him to death. They'll get him, let Pilate off the hook because Pilate doesn't want to put Jesus to death. Right. And, and in the book, obviously, you get into the detail of the, of the story that, that most of us know now of uh, yes. he receives a scourging. You know, they put a, uh, a robe on him, a crown of thorns, and you yes. go into a lot of detail as to how painful both of those things yes. would have been, the the heft yeah. of the robe and what that would have felt like, the the nerve endings that are in the forehead. Yes. Again, all that is in the book, The Crucifixion of the King of Glory. But as we know, even after Pilate offered up Barabbas uh, and they chose Jesus, and even after all the, the washing of the hands and everything, Jesus does end up meeting yeah. his fate, which is crucifixion. And so you, you detail in the book, you know, uh, some people see, you know, the, the cross as we normally see it. Some people like, you know, Bill O'Reilly has the, the cross where it's like the T one, which wouldn't have made yeah. sense because they wouldn't have been able to put the sign on the top of yeah. his head. But if you would please give us a, an overview uh, we don't really, I guess, have to get into the history of the crucifixion. Guys, the crucifixion was not invented by the Roman, Romans, but they perfected right. it at the time right. that it was written right. in the Old Testament prophecies that he would be pierced for our transgressions. Crucifixion didn't even exist yet, uh, which also points to to the uh, the substantial nature of the prophecies yes, the prophecy, and the yeah. Old Testament scriptures. But just talk to me a little bit more about the process and feel free to get into as much detail yes. as you'd like as to how a criminal was crucified and killed on a Roman cross. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, well, um, yeah, there were different shapes of crosses and different heights of crosses. And that doesn't really matter for our purposes. But I think, again, people talk about what kind of cross Christ was crucified on. Probably a, a typical cross is called a Latin cross where you do have the upper part, the upper upright beam projected above, uh, because we do know that they put the titulus over his head. That's the placard. So that's why we think that. And uh, let's go ahead and start. But after the scourging, and in the case of Pilate, Pilate is forced by the Jews, Jewish leaders, and this is explained by the book. He doesn't, he doesn't think Jesus is really guilty of anything. And this is one way that I, I disagree with a lot of Bible scholars today who think that um, Pilate really wanted to kill Jesus. I don't think that's true. Mm. But he finally is forced to, um, to pronounce judgment on Jesus and, and send him to the cross. So what that involved was that they only carried the cross beam on the way to the site of crucifixion. The condemned mm. person was required to carry his cross, but it wasn't the whole cross that we see in the movies, even the Mel Gibson movie uh, gets that wrong or in pictures or whatever, where Jesus is trudging along. He couldn't have carried the whole cross because it has to hold his whole own body weight. So uh, a cross 
the entire cross, it would also have been very awkward to carry that, you know, where it's not a flimsy little thing, a thin little uh, couple pieces of wood, but something that was very substantial. So instead, the upright beam was at the site of crucifixion. That was a permanent structure. And then they had the cross beam that was put on the back of the uh, condemned person, and he had to sort of bend over, stretch out his arms, and they tied that crossbeam to his arm so it was carried on his shoulder blades, basically, which had just been scourged, by the way. And Jesus probably lost a lot of blood. He probably got a very severe scourging because he cannot carry the crossbeam to a place, uh, the place of crucifixion, which isn't that far away. And um, he's probably had lost. So he got a very severe scourging. That this is just such is my opinion, because mm-hmm. he's he should be able to because he's young and he's healthy. So um, he's carrying the he the the condemned had to carry the crossbeam, weighed down by the crossbeam, sort of bent over through the streets of the city. And when that happens, that's the first time that most people realize what happened to Christ that he was on his way to his crucifixion. They that happened. The trial was in the middle of the night with the Jews and very very early in the morning with Pilate. So when they got to the site of crucifixion, they would put the person on the ground. Um, he still had on, on his back, and again, that had been very severely lacerated, extremely painful. Put him on the ground, untie the beam, and just put his, uh, stretch his arms a- along the length of the beam. And then because there were four soldiers that were usually assigned to this duty, and maybe one sort of supervisor, um, one of them would sit on their legs and two of them would sit on the each of their arms or pull, hold down their arms while the fourth person, the fourth uh, Roman soldier, would drive an iron nail through the uh, hand of the person. And then here's something else that I kind of get into some discussion because for a long time, many, many people said that the nails were put through the wrists. Now, the fact right. is I discussed this um, the word for, in Greek for hand is the whole appendage. We don't have a separate word. Even today in Greek, modern Greek is the same thing. Cheri is a whole thing. There's no separate word for hand versus arm. The same for foot. Um, but of course, in all of the pictures and the in the iconography and the early Christian depictions, we see a nail here. But a, lo- a long time ago, people figured out, well, a nail put in the center of the palm could not support the weight. Yeah. Well, there's discussions about this, and so we know that it couldn't, but he wasn't being supported just by his palms. But I also discuss how probably what happened is they drove a nail, if you go like this, um, touching your little finger to your thumb, it creates this furrow called the thinner furrow. If you draw at the base of that, not here in the center of the palm, but at the base of the thinner furrow, if you drive a nail there on an angle, it will come out here at the wrist. And this is a strong place to hold a body that's being suspended by a cross. So they would drive this nail that was very rough. You know, it's not nice and smooth like the kinds we buy at Home Depot. It was very rough and made of iron and is several inches long. They drove it through the base of the palm and it came out at on the wood of the of, at the back of the cross, but you don't see that. So as the person is impaled, you see the nail here, okay? But the the exit wound, we would say, is here. And I explained how this came to a, a person who a medical, um, um, you know, a, a coroner, 
figured this out. So um, at any rate, so they do this for both of the hands, and then they lift would lift him up with either by hand the, with a weight of all these soldiers or by a pulley system. We're not exactly sure how they would lift people up. And they would drop them into the into a slot at the um, so at the on top of the upright beam. There was a place to drop it down. The upright beam that was kept at that site. So um, now he's hanging by his hands, and they have the the but the feet are loose. So now the feet were nailed to the upright beam. Okay, and. Um, Again, we see how the person would they'd have to bend his legs so that the palm of the foot was, I mean, the, the base of the foot, the bottom of the foot was flat against the upright beam. So we all know from lying in bed how we get our feet flat on the mattress is we have to bend our, our knees. So the knees were bent until the feet were flat, and then an iron nail was put through the arch of each foot independently, not like this, like we see in some of the... Uh, some of the artwork, but each nail independently, each foot, and then the person would um, hang there. And it was extremely, extraordinarily painful because the um, it's not just the puncturing of the skin and the muscles and the sinews themselves. It is the nerves and the constant rubbing of the mm -hmm. iron nails against the nerves. It was excru excruciatingly painful. And also the fixed position on the cross. We can never really know what it feels like because you can't ever do an experiment today <laughs> to see what it was like when someone was right. crucified. But this one coroner, uh, Frederick Zugibi, did a number of experiments on, on full-grown men as much as he could. He was a, a medical doctor. Uh, about the effects of crucifixion and talked about how extraordinarily painful it was simply to keep your arms stretched out like this and the chest ex extended like this for a, a long period of time. Even that created spasms and tremendous pains. So the, the whole body was experiencing horrific pains uh, by crucifixion. And that's why I it was really the worst yeah, I mean, that's where we, we get our word excruciating in, in right. modern parlance. And uh, again, right. you get into a lot of time there. And to anybody in the audience that maybe is a little bit squeamish or yes. a little bit, you know, you watch The Passion of the Christ and you walked out because you're like, this is this is too terrible. It's like you have to understand what Jesus willingly endured yes. for you. Okay. And regardless important. of your theological, uh, you know, yes. stuff in terms of substitutionary right. atonement or anything like that, that doesn't come into what actually happened on the ground that day at Golgotha. Right. And right. when, when he was placed on the cross, which you've done a great job of elucidating, there's a lot of significance to the many statements that Jesus made from the cross. Yes. And again, in yes. the book, I think there were seven statements total that Jesus made from the cross yes. that are depicted yes. in different books. Uh, whenever you take, take them all in their total totality, you get a seven yes. statements that were at least recorded. So he at least right. said that much, if not more. Right. Uh, is there a statement on the cross to you, Jeannie, that, that sticks out as something that's Maybe so significant, but in modernity, we don't we don't see it in its full breadth because that's something about the book. Yeah. It's like you're trying to give weight yes. to things that should be yes. weighty. But what would right. you say to that? Uh, that's that's good. Yes, because what I try to do in the book is because I'm quoting also early Christian writers. I'm trying to give the perspective of the early church in all of this. And, and thank you for saying that 
that we need to read about these things. And by the way, so to the to the listeners, I'm not um, really uh, or the viewers, um, even though I do talk about it, I try to keep it clinical and medical. It's not gory. I don't try to, to give lurid details about how he was suffering and all this. You don't have to worry about that. But I do think that if you are a Christian, you owe it to the Lord to read at least medically what he went through. Okay, because we're never going to experience anything like that. So among his statements, I my goodness, um, there's so many. I, I can't really pick one that I think is particularly significant uh, because they all have great significance, as you mentioned. But I'd like to start with, if I could choose one to talk about, it would be the one that's the most misunderstood. And that's the most famous one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason why that's, uh, that, that's important is because that line is used by many people to say that Jesus felt alienated from the Father on the cross. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because the Father and the Son are one. The Trinity is one. God, the Son, can never be alienated from the Father. Um, and it's they, people feel like, usually what they say is that Jesus lost faith or he was in despair or something like this. But actually, Jesus was quoting the first line from Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm and it's a prophetic psalm that describes what's happening on the cross. And a lot of people know that today. That because the, the Psalms didn't have numbers, the title of the Psalm, which were the Psalms were sung in the synagogue. Everybody knew them by heart, like you know the hymns from your hymnal. Um, the Psalms were sung, and everybody knew them, and they didn't have numbers. So the title was the first line. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's praying the first line of that Psalm or calling it to remembrance for everybody who's watching him on the cross. Now, the reason why that psalm is significant isn't simply because it's prophetic and that prophecy was being fulfilled, but the last third of the psalm hints at the resurrection because it changes from a psalm of lament for the person who's distressed to suddenly saying, in the midst of my, I will stand in the congregation, which by the way, is the word church, ecclesia in that line, mm. and, and with my brethren, and I will praise you. And the last third of the psalm is about praising God and it's talking about how future generations will talk about what the Lord has done. It's amazing. Okay, so it's not about how Jesus was in despair about the cross. It's as though he's saying, it looks bad right now, but this is prophecy. This is, must happen because this is what the Father desired. But in the end, I will be vindicated and I will stand among you and everybody will glorify God because of this. It's quite ama amazing. And so I, I really, I really enjoy the the detail you go into to explaining not only just now but but certainly in the book. But this is what I'm I'm a little mad at you, Jeannie. Do you want to know okay. why I'm mad at you? Okay. Yes, you, I do. You got you got me all excited. Here I am. I'm reading like a good boy, and I read every word of every book that I do for the podcast. And we're you know yeah. 300 pages in, 315 pages in, 340 pages in. And Dad Gummit, I thought you were going to spend more time on the resurrection. So yes. my question for you today is: Do we hold out hope that there's a, a forthcoming book that's going to detail the resurrection stuff like that? I'm sure you've been asked this before. Ready, set, go. Of course, because okay. we never leave Christ in the tomb. Okay, uh, I had to. The, the book was the Crucifixion of the King of Glory, 
And I had to leave a lot of things out of the book. I would never intended to talk about the resurrection at all mm, yeah. because it's a, a, enough. The crucifixion is a big enough topic, but we, we always have to finish with the resurrection. So yes, I'm actually working on that right now. And um, I'm hoping to write it in the same style as the crucifixion book, which is more of a narrative thing. That's it's going to be harder to achieve because um, for those of you who haven't read the book, crucifixion of the King of glory, it's really a narrative arc. It's like you're, I'm trying to make you feel like you're there, sort of watching things through the, a crack in the door. You're present, and you're going through this experience in uh, following Christ or all of these things, not in an emotional way, but in a historical way. So um, we have to deal with the resurrection, of course, and I, I can't wait to talk about that. Well, so thanks for do that. We have, yes. Yeah, do we have an idea of when we can expect something like this? Are we working I, on it? I, yes, I am working on it. I promised it to my um, the publisher in January that I'm supposed to give the manuscript then. And so they hope that it will be published by December in time for Christmas of 2024. So that's like a year, still a year and a half away. But it takes time to write a book and it takes time to edit and to print and all of that. So it's a long process. But God willing, you know. I will complete it in time so it can be available in 2024. Well, End hey, you, 2024. you've got some time, certainly. And obviously, if you're willing to have us, we'd love to have you back on the Absolutely. show to talk to. about it. I would love to dig into that a little bit more. But we've gone everywhere in this conversation. But I do want to leave a little bit of meat on the bone again, guys. The Crucifixion of the King of Glory, it is in the show notes. You should go and pick it up. Give it your time and attention. Listen to it. Read it. Do whatever you want to do. But Jeannie, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I just want to thank you for uh, inviting me to come and talk about Christ and and uh, wish every, wish you well with your podcast and everybody else. Um, and uh, I'd be, it'd be a pleasure to come back anytime to talk to you about any subject. I, I think it's important that we, we keep dialogue, Christian dialogue open between Christians. And um, we've, we're living in an era in which there's so much animosity and people feel like they can't share differing opinions. Um, people are labeled and um, marginalized for having a different perspective, but really we can learn so much from each other. So thanks for inviting me on the podcast and uh, I wish you well in your ministry because this is a, a ministry. Amen. Jeannie Constantino, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you, Kyle. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Eugenia Constantinou. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got two links for you today. I've got a link to where you can buy your copy of The Crucifixion of the King of Glory. And then I've got a YouTube link. And this was the first time I was actually able to view any content with her on it. It's her interview that she did with Eric Metaxas. The name of the video is The Gospels Are Historical Documents. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self titled debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah <laughs>